Hey, Kingdom Roots listeners. This podcast is brought to you by Northern Seminary, and I wanted to let you know of an exciting announcement that Northern has just made in regards to their Northern Live online learning platform. This is where you can take classes and really sit in class from anywhere in the world and pursue a number of different degree programs. Well, the exciting announcement is that Northern is adding to that list of degree program options the Masters of Divinity and Masters of Arts in Christian Ministry programs. Now, of course, if you've ever looked into a Masters of Divinity program, it's pretty extensive, the flagship program of really any seminary. And what Northern now allows you to do is you can take that Masters of Divinity program, but also include a specialization in, say, like the Masters of Arts in New Testament with Scott McKnight that we talk about frequently, or the Masters of Theology and Mission, or Anabaptist Studies, or Multi-Ethnic Church Leadership. All of these different options can now be completed within the Masters of Divinity program. So um, really encourage you to get on Northern's website at seminary.edu slash live to learn more about the different options. So thanks so so much for joining us this week. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a talk from Scott on what I wish every Christian would do reading their Bible. So I'm glad to be with you, and uh, my uh, uh, task this morning is to talk to you about what I wish every Christian would do when reading the Bible. So this is sort of an introductory level of basic principles, disciplines, and practices that I would love for you to develop as you read the Bible. We're not going to talk about Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Latin, and the history of the interpretive tradition. We want to talk at the ground level, things we need to remind ourselves of when we are reading the Bible. So I would like to, um, I have 10 points. I grew up Baptist, and that meant you only had three points. But I'm now Anglican, and I can have 10. And I do it in a very sophisticated manner. So I'd like to uh, give 10 principles of what I wish everyone would do when reading the Bible. And each one of these, I suppose, could be introduced by negatives of bad things we do, but uh, I'll try to avoid those and, and start with this principle, and it is this. Recall every time that you open the Bible to read it, that the Bible is a gift from God. That the Bible is a gift from God. I believe that one of the biggest problems in the young adult generation today is an absence of reflection on what the Bible is and an acceptance of what the Bible is and allowing that to be the foundation for reading Scripture. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says to Timothy, a young pastor, a young leader, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, 
This is referring to his, his, Timothy's acceptance of the gospel. He says, continue in that because you know from whom you learned it. Trustworthy teachers, pastors, leaders, and parents. How from infancy, now he's talking about his mother and grandmother. You have known the Holy Scriptures. Nothing parents can give to their children more as a gift than routine exposure to Scripture, to know the Bible. And these scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible is designed to lead us to redemption. But notice what he says next. All scripture is God-breathed. It could be translated every scripture, every verse, every line, every part of the Bible is God-breathed. This used to be translated inspired or is given by inspiration. But the idea is that God is at work in the authors when they write Scripture so that what is written is what God wants to communicate to His people. This is a profound theological perception of what we're looking at when we open the Bible. It really is. Is to say, this is God's word to us. It is a gift from God to you and me, from God, to speak to us what God wants us to hear. Which means it's not just human words. This isn't something that we say, well, I sort of like this. You know, we find passages in the Bible that, we, that shock us, and we say, why is this here? And when Dan I don't do PowerPoints because Dan's so good at it. But uh, when you see uh, passages in the Bible that shock you and bother you, I believe they're meant to shock you and bother you. You're not supposed to diminish the shock and get de-bothered by them. If you're bothered by it, that's exactly what's supposed to happen from that text. And it doesn't mean then that you have to erase it. You have to struggle with it as a communication from God. Not to tell you that God wants people to kill their daughters the way Jephthah does in the book of Judges. But to struggle with that text. Why is this in our Bible? Because this is the sort of people that populate God's people in the world. And we have to hear these things because they are a message from God to us. Because Scripture is God-breathed and comes from God, it becomes useful, and Paul now explains that. It's useful for teaching so that we'll know things. It's useful for rebuking. Sometimes uh, you wake up in the morning and you read some Bible, and some Bible tells you off and reminds you what's wrong. You read the Sermon on the Mount, not for comfort, but for a little dash of cold water in the mirror in the morning to remind you that you're not all that good of a disciple and you have a long ways to go. And then chapter 5 finishes off. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now that's a comforting thought. 
I mean, the problem is not the word perfect. You know, New Testament scholars fight on the meaning of the word perfect. Greek word, teleos. Hebrew word, tamim. So they study this and they, they try to show that it doesn't mean what you think it means. And I've often said to my friends who write on these things, the problem is not the word perfect. The problem is the word as. Whatever you put on this side about God and then say as God is and you have to live up to it, it doesn't matter what it is, you lose. And it's a call to that. So it's a summons for you to lay it all out for God as God has laid it all out for us and it's always a challenge. So the Bible is rebuking and it's correcting. It not only will tell you off, but it'll tell you how to live. That's a good thing. Even if you don't want to do it, it's going to tell you how you're supposed to live and what we're doing wrong. And it does this to train us in righteousness so that the servant of God, so that people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, so that we become transformed by encounter with the Bible. So let me encourage you that when you open up the Bible to say a little prayer of thanks to God that he has so chosen to communicate with us through the Bible that we know what God wants for us. It's a great gift to have the Bible. It's inspired. It's given by inspiration. And therefore, because it is a gift from God, it is unlike any other kind of book in the world other than mine. <laughs> Seriously. That, does, that means that in my world, I hear people talk about Karl Barth all the time. I get tired of Karl Barth. I get tired because he writes such long volumes that are almost impossible to read. But Karl Barth was a genius. St. Augustine was a genius. John Calvin was genius. Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, these were great people, but they did not write the Bible. Our primary text is Scripture, and as Protestants, it's even more so that it's Scripture. We challenge all tradition, we challenge all theologians to prove themselves on the basis of the Bible. So I would encourage you to make the Bible a steady part of your life by accepting it as a gift from God. All right? Here's my second point. I'm not good on transitions either, Ryan. Get out of the way. Get out of the way when you're reading the Bible. It comes as a surprise to certain sorts of Americans that the Bible was not written by a Republican. It comes as a surprise to other sorts of Americans that the Bible was not written by a Democrat. The Bible was not written by a socialist. The Bible is neither capitalist nor socialist. It's ancient. They didn't know what you're talking about. But we grab the Bible and we make it say what we want. If you defend the Bible as defending Republicanism or Democrats, I want to pick on both sides, I want to turn you off and say, you need a whole new lesson of getting out of the way and letting the Bible say what the Bible says. The Bible was written by a minority population in the USA, Jews. 
for a minority in the USA, Jews. And then it was widened to include Gentiles, us. All right? So it was written in an ancient culture that had a very minority status in the ancient world. And we have to enter into that world in order to understand this text. There's a great line by the German poet Johann von Goethe. And I'll quote it for you in German because it so, has such great German lilt. Willst in Dichter du verstehen, musst in Dichters Lande gehen. If you want to understand a poet, you must go to the poet's land. Willst ein Dichter du verstehen, musst in Dichters Lande gehen. It's kind of cool, isn't it? All right, so... I believe we have to enter into that world, and we're going to have to drop our American perceptions and our capitalist perceptions and our political perceptions and our theological perceptions and enter back into that world and let that world take us over. Do you know what an auto-stereogram is? Do you know books that are called Magic Eyes? Do you know these books? They're dots. When you open up the page, it's dots. But if you have a little bit of a skill with your eyes to let your eyes go, your eyes will suddenly adjust, and all of a sudden those dots become a three-dimensional picture, and they start taking you over. That's the skill we want to develop in reading the Bible. We need the magical eyes of Scripture readers so that we will hear the Bible as it was meant to be heard. To do that, we have to get out of the way. The biggest problem in Bible reading is the reader's intrusiveness. My wife is a psychologist. When she was going, doing her doctorate, she made me take all the tests that psychologists have to give. And I had to do them sometimes several times. And I'll never forget taking the Rorschach inkblot test. Now, these are just blobs. Ink, colored ink on a page and then folded in half, and then you open it up and you see an image. And a psychologist, look, you know, they hold the picture up to you, and they have a little Mona Lisa smile on their face. What, what do you see? And if you say hips, they go, Freud. If you say bloody brains, they call someone. <laughs> now, the, the skill of the Rorschach inkblot is that there's nothing there, and you're fools to answer the question, but I did, all right, many times. But what you see is what you project. And a lot of people are Rorschach inkblot Bible readers. They project onto the Bible what they want the Bible to say. But first, let the Bible be what it is. In all its strange, utter, um, abrasive realities, let, let it happen. Don't make it be what it's not. Let it be what it is. I remember one time I was teaching a group of college students and we were reading, I don't know why, we were in Exodus chapter 4. 
And this is a rather odd chapter where Moses, Moshe, has not circumcised his little boy named Gershom. And there, there's, a, there's the intimation that Yahweh is chasing Moses. And a student in my class raises his hand with colorful language and says, Yo, Scott, you know, that's how, that means Dr. McKnight, <laughs> says, Yo, Scott, isn't Yahweh fast enough to catch him? You know, I, I didn't see that because I, I didn't want to see that. But there's an oddity about this in the text. And I always liked it when naive people who had not been trained in the church read the Bible. They always saw things I never saw. Because they let the text say what it is. They're sensitive to what it actually says. And we have to get out of the way for the Bible to say what it is. One more illustration. There's a great painting by Rembrandt. It's up here on the PowerPoint presentation. I can't believe that that happened. I didn't know that was going to happen. That's pretty cool. I sent this to Dan, but I didn't hear anything more. All right, this is, this, this is Rembrandt's painting called Aristotle Gazing at the Head of Homer. All right? That's pretty cool, except that Aristotle is dressed in Renaissance Dutch clothing. What an image of our problem in reading the Bible. Aristotle is coming, you know, Rembrandt obviously likes Aristotle, not Homer. So he made him in his own image. So that now it's Rembrandt looking at Homer rather than Aristotle. This is our big challenge in reading the Bible is that we, if we're going to be Paul talking to the Colossians or we're going to be Jesus talking to the Galileans, we cannot dress up Jesus or Paul in our own clothing and make him address those people asking our questions. Paul gets to be Paul, Jesus gets to be Jesus, and we get to watch it happen. And our first task is to get out of the way, all right? Now, I'm going to have to move on or I'm going to go on too long. I told you I grew up Baptist. What, what time? Where's Dan? Okay, I'll just go on then. <laughs> the, third, the third principle I think we need to develop is to develop bigger ears. Develop bigger ears. Now, if you are an attentive Bible reader, you will know that this word in the Bible here is used a lot. And the word here, Shema in Hebrew, uh, akuo in Greek, uh, this word here uh, resonates at several levels. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to the people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries. No one hears them. All right? There is the sense in which Hearing in the Bible is a matter of just being attentive. And this is the ground level of having an ear for the Bible, is just listening and hearing what is actually said. But it gets deeper. Sometimes in the Bible, the word hear means to absorb. It's not just to be attentive. 
It is to absorb. So in 1 Kings chapter 3, 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 9 and 12, we hear this about the king. 1 Kings 3, 9. So give your servant a discerning heart. And this is uh, being able to listen, to govern your people and distinguish between what is right and wrong. And then verse 12, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there may never be anyone like you nor anyone ever will be. This is the request of the king to have an ear. The word heart, and in, in, there's, there's a connection of hearing here, is that we will be able to hear in such a way that it goes deep into our life so that we become wise. But in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this word here suddenly becomes an, an action. It can be attentive, uh, hearing as attention, hearing as absorption, and hearing as action. Therefore, everyone, Jesus says, who hears these words of mine and does them. Hearing here is the very Jewish idea. To hear a teacher is not just to listen and absorb, but to do what the teacher says. And I believe we need to develop bigger ears as Bible readers so that we hear what it says, we let it have its way in our heart, the way the picture had its way with Eustace in the voyage of the dawn treader and sucked him into the picture. So the Bible will draw us in the way a novel will, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, To Kill a Mockingbird, or maybe you like, as I do, Flannery O'Connor, who will draw you in and then turn you inside out and you kind of wonder what in the world is going on. But they draw you into these stories so that we are absorbed in the story and then we learn to live in light of this experience in the story. And that's why Jesus tells parables. He wants us to imagine a world like this. He draws us into a little short story and then when it's over, like the Pevensey kids being dropped back out in the house after they've been in Narnia, now you want to live a different way because you've experienced a new reality, having heard and absorbed what was going on. So, let us develop bigger ears. Fourth, remind yourself of the story of Israel and ask where your Bible passage fits in the story. One of the oddest things that happens to Bible readers, for me as a seminary professor, is when people pick a passage and pick a line from some obscure corner in the Bible and then apply it to a situation where, as a professor, I want to say, that has nothing to do with what you're trying to apply it to. Let that Bible speak in that context, and that context is not at all our context. And that is an important part of Bible reading, is know where a passage says what it says and why it is said in that context. We live by stories, and I'm privileged to be an editor of a New Testament commentary series called The Story of God Bible Commentary. And every passage, all, all our authors are asked to begin every passage by locating this passage 
in the Bible's larger story. Only by seeing it in that story do we understand what this passage means in this context. I, I often divide the Bible's narrative into three sections. I used to call it Plan A, Plan B, and Plan A Prime. But one of my friends told me that you can't call it Plan B uh, because that means God had to change his mind. So I said, okay, I, I won't use that now. But Anne Lamott had a book called Plan B, so I thought that was pretty clever, you know, to use Plan B. But I think there are three basic sections to the Bible. I call them theocracy. And this is the story from Genesis 1-1 to 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Samuel sheepishly comes to God and says, they want a king. And God says, and he's embarrassed about this, that the people of Israel who are ruled by God want to have a king like the other nations. And Yahweh says rather encouragingly to Samuel, they have not rejected you, they've rejected me. But let's give them a king. So we enter into a new phase in the Bible, from theocracy to monarchy. And this period of monarchy is both deconstructive, because Israel does not do real well under a monarch. For long they have to split the whole place in half, or not even in half. Most of the people go off and never heard from again. But at, as, as this monarchy is falling apart and going up and down and sometimes doing well and sometimes not, God is beginning to speak to Israel through the prophets of what the future monarch is going to look like. So we move from a theocracy where God is the only king to a monarchy where we have a human king to a Christocracy where we have a divine human king named Jesus. That's the basic narrative of the Bible. The message of the New Testament is not simply that you can get saved, but that God has now sent the Messiah, the King of Israel, to rule over the world, the cosmos. And that's the Bible's narrative, and I think we need to keep this narrative in mind as we read the Bible. So I think the secret to reading the Bible is to learn it well enough that you know where you are in the story and what this story is doing in the long-term plot to rule the world in Christ. Fifth, read the Bible with others, with others. And there are four others that I think you need to read the Bible with. I have a friend who calls me every now and then, <clears throat> and he'll, when he calls me, I know we're in for a conversation, and it's going to be awkward because he's been reading the Bible all by himself. And sometimes he has said to me, I think I have figured out in the Bible where heaven is, and he thinks it's out in the, you know, he thinks he's figured out the place in the Bible. And then he'll give me some text from some obscure prophet that had nothing to do with that, and he's building a theology on it. I like people to read the Bible on their own. But people who read the Bible entirely on their own make a lot of mistakes. God did not give this Bible for you alone. He gave this Bible to his people to read together. 
So I would urge you to read the Bible with others, your small group, if you're in a small group. Read the Bible together and listen to how other people hear the Bible, because you will hear that they hear things that you don't hear, and that's a good thing. Read the Bible with your church heritage. If you're Anglican, learn about the Anglican interpretation of Scripture. If you're Baptist, learn about the Baptist interpretation of Scripture. If you're Reformed, read John Calvin and learn how he's interpreted the Bible, all right? I could go on. Read the Bible with your church heritage. Know your church heritage. Church heritages are important interpretive traditions. None of them is infallible. I want you to know that. But every one of them is valuable. And we need to listen to one another. Then, as you develop theologically, you can learn how Catholics read the Bible and how uh, Presbyterians read the Bible and how Methodists read the Bible, and you can bring these people into conversation with one another, and they will expand our dimensions of Scripture. Read the Bible with your teachers, and by teachers I mean your pastors, your professors, and your favorite books. A lot of us today have, or your favorite uh, uh, websites, but make sure people know which websites you're using, because some of them aren't so good. Other than mine, of course, my blog. <laughs> Dan said it was a good one, so I'm okay. How long do I go, Jay? Ten more minutes? Okay. So read the Bible. Listen to your pastor and how he or she reads the Bible. Listen to professors. You know, professors live their life to read the Bible and interpret it for people. And they spend their whole life doing this. They get kind of lopsided at times. But they're pretty good at this. Listen to how they read the Bible. Learn from how they've learned to approach the Scripture. Finally, learn your church history. You know, it is important for you to know that the church did not begin in California in the 21st century. All right? The church began in the first century in the Holy Land. And the Apostle Paul and the Apostles moved that gospel to Rome, and from Rome, the gospel exploded into all of the Roman Empire. And in that history, there have been great thinkers. Know what people like Ignatius and Athanasius and Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin, and don't forget the Anabaptists, like Conrad Grable. Uh, you've never heard of these. But they have some great names, these Anabaptists. How about the name Johannes Blaurock or Balthazar Hubmeier? That's a great name if you're a theologian. I mean, nobody can say it, and nobody reads him anymore. But these people have contributed to our story. And John Wesley, and Jonathan Edwards, and Billy Graham. We, we listened to the, the history of the church in order to know how to read the Bible better. It's not that God just wants to start Bible reading with you and me. He has taught the church for generations, and we need to hear what God has taught the church. Sixth, take advantage of seminaries and Christian colleges and conferences. Uh, people are brought in usually because of specialties. This is a subtle ad for Northern Seminary. But Western Seminary is here, and I value Western Seminary 
as some place that can contribute to your own spiritual growth and theological education. We're not really competitors. Uh, we're in the same business together, but we all need students. And I would encourage you to find out about evening classes. Our seminary packs out in evening classes with people in churches who just want to learn more about the book of Revelation, or they want to learn more about church history, and they take a course. I promise you, it'll be a life-transforming experience. It may be over your head at times. That's fine. It's fine to get pushed way beyond your comfort level. Take advantage of your opportunities. Use DVDs that are made for these things. There's a lot of great DVD programs out there for education and learning about the Bible. So take advantage of these for your enrichment. Seventh, avoid decontextualizing verses. Avoid decontextualizing verses. Dan has brought up a little of this, but I like to go to Leviticus chapter 19 and ask people if they, if they think they should do these things. All right? Listen to these verses. Each of you must respect your mother and father. People are generally for that. And you must observe my Sabbaths. Christians don't do that. And you can't make Sunday Sabbath. That's not what it is. Okay? So let's just quit playing that game. All right? So that's something that we say that's not for us today. Verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard, which is a very California thing to do, I understand. Do not go over it a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I think we would probably say we do this, some farmers do this indirectly, but not that way. So we transform it, right? So there's a decontextualizing and a recontextualizing that occurs as we read the Bible. Verse 19, do not mate different kinds of animals. I don't worry about that much. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. I do that. Kale, crinkly kale, flat leaf kale, chard. They're mixed next to tomatoes and strawberries. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. I'm sure I'm not doing that. <laughs> Nor do I care. All right? So we decontext, we, we realize that's not for us that way. So that's not something that we are obeying. Verse 26 Do not eat any meat with the blood still in it. In-and-out burger. I've heard about this. All right. But people go, they go to restaurants and they order rare steaks. Very un-Jewish of them. All right. We don't even think that's important. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Not very many male doing that. Do not cut your bodies for the dead. I'm glad most people don't do that. Or put tattoo marks on yourselves. We won't even ask for a show of hands. <laughs> so we have to be careful about decontextualizing. 
Most of us read texts like this and we sort of instinctively know what to do with that text. That's a part of Bible reading. We can't simply say, well, that's what it says. No tattoo mark. I have friends. I've had parents call me about their college students. My daughter got a tattoo. Can you tell her it's against the Bible? I say, no, I'm not going to tell her it's against the Bible. That's your problem, not mine. <laughs> Plus, I don't want to talk to your daughter about her tattoos. She may show me or something like that, you know? <laughs> so we have to learn to read the Bible in context. We have to move on. Eighth, don't be afraid to be mistaken. My friend Tom Wright, you've probably heard of him. He's a pretty famous New Testament guy named N.T. Wright. Tom Wright routinely says, I think I'm right in reading the Bible 90% of the time. I just don't know which is the 10%. I like that humility. I like that because I like people to say, this is the way I read the Bible, but I could be wrong. Can you show me that I'm wrong and I'll change my mind? We have to be willing to try our ideas out. We read the Bible. We share with our friends. This is what I think. What do you think? All right, now, just try writing a book in the Internet world. You know, Everybody is, feels entitled to an opinion. It used to be nice because it took a year for book reviews to come out. Now they come out the, before the book is even out. You find out that someone doesn't like your book and they found an error in it and they want to call the whole world's attention to it. Well, we can learn from these types of criticisms, but we need to develop reading communities where we read the Bible with others and we share the way we read the Bible and we learn from one another. Now, it's no fun to read with someone who's always right. You know, they, they tell you, no, that's not what it means. Oh, wait a minute. Let's, let's back off a little bit and let's be friends here and have a civil conversation. This is what I'm seeing. Where, where have I made a mistake how can I learn better about how to read the Bible rather than make you an authority who has to thump on me? How about if we learn to read the Bible together? We learn from our mistaken interpretations. Ninth, this is important for me, but it can sound wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> when you read the Bible, don't expect too much. Not every time you open the Bible will it be an earth-shattering, eye-twittering, experientially intense experience. It might not even be a brand new discovery. Once you are familiar with the Bible and have read the Bible through a couple times, it's no longer brand new. Ezekiel's bizarre weirdness has become normal. All right? And Jesus' odd remarks to people, let the dead bury their dead, you're just saying, wait till he says this one again. You're used to it. Here's a very important principle in the Bible, in reading the Bible. The purpose of the Bible, of reading the Bible, is not to discover something new, but to be reminded of something old. Not to discover something new, but to be reminded of something old. This word is not there for the first time when you read it. Many people have been reading it and reading it and reading it for thousands of years. And it is important for us 
to be reminded of what's important, to be reminded of what is old, so that we can let this deepen its way into our hearts and souls and lives and bones till it becomes a part of us. Finally, my tenth one. Thank God for speaking when you close or even before you close your Bible. Thank God because God is speaking to you through Scripture. You may not know what He said. You may have read Scripture. I read some stuff from Ezekiel 14 this morning. You read it and you think, okay, I read it again. But thank God for that, because over time, what is said there will work its way into your bones and will become a part of your instincts and life. Well, I want to thank you for listening on this early Saturday morning, which is late for me, because I'm from Chicago, and it's two hours ahead. This is mid-morning or late morning for me. But I want to encourage you to be Bible readers. Open your Bibles and read it. All the good translations are fine. Don't believe anyone who tells you that there's only one really safe translation. That's nonsense. They're all good translations. God speaks through all of them to you if you listen, absorb, and act. Thank you. 